Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. Today's episode is a little different than normal because it features two interviews that, even though they weren't intended to run together, hit on a number of the same issues. First, I speak with the Tony-nominated song and dance man Tony Yazbek, who will be performing a week from today at the Bernstein Centennial Celebration at Tanglewood. Then I talked to Brandon Williams, who, despite one of the most eclectic careers I've ever seen, is making his Broadway debut in his mid-40s as the villain Tygen in the new musical Getting the Band Back Together, which opened earlier this week. As I was talking with both Tony and Brandon, they each spoke about the need that they have as artists to always be creating, and how that impacts the responsibilities that they each have as husbands and fathers. First up is Tony Yazbek. He will be part of an incredible lineup at Tanglewood next week that includes Broadway names like Audrey McDonald and Jessica Vosk, as well as some of the biggest names in their fields like John Williams, Yo-Yo Ma, Thomas Hampson, Susan Graham, Michael Tilson Thomas, and more. Tickets for the outdoor concert in Lenox, Massachusetts range from $25 to $125, and we will, of course, have a link to purchase tickets in the show notes. Now, to get our conversation started, I asked Yazbek, who was a Tony nominee for the 2014 revival of Bernstein's On the Town, what makes the composer's music so enduring and impactful? Well, I think, um, you know, in his music, there's, there's something very deeply profound and almost ethereal-like. It's almost like he's channeling, I don't know, I mean... It, not to get cliche, but almost like he has this sort of angelic quality about how he channels your emotions and your, your feelings into his music. Um, and, the, you know, everything he does, whether it's something that is danced and, and it makes you feel incredible, uh, like, like you just want to bounce all over the place, like on the town or something or West Side, or it's something, you know, beautifully moving, like something like Mayor Garden Grow or somewhere, it always feels like it always feels like he's really trying to make us feel something deeper than we've all, we've never felt before. So I, I don't know. I, I think I connect to that easily in a sense where I've always been sort of attracted to roles and projects that come from like sort of the center where your heart is and to, to be able to be open hearted and experience something, surprise yourself, be vulnerable. So he, he's sort of a, a master at that, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of composers are tongue in cheek and have something a little, you know, it's like they're obviously beautiful and heartfelt, but there's something almost like they're waking at, like Irvin Berlin. Even Gershwin does it, even though he's a master. But uh, Bernstein is something he has an authentic style about him where he just gets really real right away and makes you confront like something very deep within yourself. And so I, I just really respect that about him. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like something that that appeals to so many different people as we look at the the artists that are involved um, with the celebration at Tanglewood later this month. Like there's not for nothing. There's a lot of really fantastic talent that's going to be at this event. I mean, it just names from people that oh, yeah. are necessarily associated with classical music. You've got people like John Williams and, and Yo-Yo Ma and right. then obviously from the Broadway side, you and Audra McDonald and Jessica Vosk. It seems like it's right. it, this music appeals to so many different people, no matter what their specific artistic interests tend to be. Well, it does because, I mean, if you think about how he wrote it, he wrote from a classical sensibility and always wanted to try to break molds and try to break barriers and make new rules. And, and, and 
he sort of did that. He did that with On the Town. You know, I mean, when am I ever going to find a role again where I sing classically and I dance and then I go dance a 10 minute ballet? I mean, that's it's unheard of. So he, he was constantly doing that. So every there's so many different artists that are that are attracted to his work. And so I think when you when you're able to come together, like when am I going to? I mean, who knows? I'd love to share the stage again after this with Yo-Yo Maba. Goodness gracious, I get to do it. <laughs> and uh, with incredible composers, you know, these conductors. And and um, I think Thomas Hampson's coming to sing. I mean, it's, it's insane. Audra McDonald. Uh, it's going it, to gonna be a big event. Um, but, it, you know, there's been a lot of celebrations this year for Bernstein. And I've been a part of a lot of, I think I've done 15 or so already. But this one, it seems like um, the event of all events. It really feels like this one is going to be, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's sort of where he, he, he did a lot of his work at Tanglewood. You know, this is, it's, it's a home base for him. So I, I, I think it's going to be really special. And, of course, PBS is going to film it. So we'll be able to, if, you, if you're not there, you'll be able to see it later in the year. Yeah, but if you're in the area, go and get tickets. That that would be good too. Oh gosh, uh, yeah. <laughs> also, I, you know, I've never been. I've never been to Tanglewood, but supposedly it's there's really no experience like it. You know, just to be out yeah. there, outside, and it, it, uh, and with this live orchestra, it's it, there's something magical about it. And at least that, that's what I've heard for years. So I'm excited to experience it. Yeah, absolutely. When you mentioned the orchestra, obviously, um, you're on the town orchestra on Broadway was fairly sizable as well but playing this music with such a a rich group of musicians has to be uh pretty special and you've done a lot of these things across the country this year is is it is it different when you're getting up there and singing when you're on stage with the orchestra rather than you know on broadway they're in the pit and it's kind of removed is do you feel an extra power to that music when they're literally just feet behind you oh yeah i mean it is hugely powerful. I mean, you know, you get to do, I got to do this with Sanford Symphony. Uh, I was down at New World Symphony doing their gala early this year. And then I was just at Wolf Trap with uh, the National Symphony Orchestra under Michael Barrett with, uh, I think it was 90 pieces. That was the most wow. I've ever performed with. And when you do that, it's, it's, it's just surrounding you. This music is surrounding you. It's not necessarily, you're never hearing this from, you know, a speaker anywhere on the stage or anything. Yeah. It's just, it's just all around you and uh, you can't help but feel this music. And it, it does affect how you, how you sing, how you perform, because um, y- y- there's less thinking in a sense, there's less thinking and more just instinctual doing. And it's a, it, as an artist uh, that can only help. Because uh, the worst thing as an artist, you know, for us to do is just try to mimic what we've done before and try to, you know, and try to figure out what's correct. Um, And sometimes we just have to be, you know, and and use our instincts and surprise ourselves, which ultimately will surprise the audience and make them feel something deep. So it's it's exciting to uh, to do this with a huge orchestra, for sure. And under the direction of, you know, John Williams and and Michael Tilson Thomas, who I've worked with before, they're just masters, you know, and and. and hopefully we just uh, pay Bernstein proud. You know, we, we say thank you. Yeah. Talking about On the Town, it, this was a production that you had a long history with. It started at Barrington Stage and then eventually came to Broadway. It, throughout that whole process, whether it's something to do with Bernstein's music or just the progression of that show, is there a, a memory or two that sticks out from that entire process from Barrington to Broadway? Um, oh my goodness. I, you know, there is one memory that I remember. I, we were 
we had just opened at Barrington, uh, and I remember uh, I was in my housing at, at the Berkshires uh, my, with my buddy Clyde Alves, who played Ozzy in the show. And, and uh, I remember, we, we, you know, I think we read the New York Times review uh, some morning. It, we weren't even expecting anybody to come up from New York. We were just expecting to kind of do this show out there because we, we all loved the show. And I think it was just kind of like a, a mutual love of putting another show up there. And so nobody expected this show to go any further, honestly. And so when you read a stellar New York Times review, uh, it just it sort of made you feel like, is is this it or might we go somewhere else? And so I think that sort of lit a fire within us and uh, made us feel like maybe we have something even more special than we thought. Uh, uh, and so it, it and then all of a sudden we had for the next two weeks after that, we had hundreds of producers and investors and people from New York just locking up to see our show and, and uh, um, being moved as much as the other audiences were. And that, that was neat because, you know, I think sometimes when you're least expecting it, you know, wonderful blessings sort of come out of the theater. So uh, it, it, that, that, was, that, was a, that was a neat part because it felt like maybe we could do this again. It wasn't just a short run of a show. So... Yeah, and it's surprising. I, you know, it's one thing when a lot of these shows do out-of-town tryouts when they're expecting to go to Broadway, and it's more of a surprise when they don't. This kind of seemed like it was the reverse. You just seemed like you were doing the show in the Berkshires, and then something magical happened because of how great the show is and how great the production was. Right, right. You know, and it, it, there's not a lot of, you know, um, monetary you know, value in, in these out-of-town shows. You, you only have a certain amount of budget. So you're hoping that the audience gets the story and they feel from the actors and they're, they're getting everything they can from just the music and the actors who do who portray it. And, you know, the budget is small. So when you get that kind of response from that, you, you, you know, you've done your job right as an actor, as a, as a storyteller. So it's just, it was such a really nice affirming time for us. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, telling a story, one of the, the, projects that um, I don't live in New York myself, so I didn't get to see it. But a a show that really fascinates me in terms of theatrical storytelling is a show you just finished off-Broadway in The Beast in the Jungle. I I don't know that it's probably properly called a a musical. Would you call it a musical or is it more of a a play with story dance? How how would you describe that? That's a tough one. I I think we were breaking the mold either way. And and that's why I I think we we did our job because you get to ask the question and you still don't know. And I think that's what was so exciting about it. But, uh, you know, I I think, uh, you know, Stroman would call it a dance play. And and so it it is a dance play in a way, but I I look at it as a play with some dance and obviously it's completely scored from top to bottom with John's beautiful, beautiful John Kander music. Um, But it, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say it's a musical because people would call contact a musical, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, this was, this was a spoken play, uh, you know, narrated from top to bottom and, you know, with dialogue and, and then danced when you couldn't speak anymore. So in a way, what that is kind of a definition of a musical, uh, because, uh, when people break out into dance, it's because we have to, right. So, yeah. Um, it's, I guess that's an ongoing conversation. I don't know what, <laughs> what you would call it, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, it was, it was fun to storytell in a new way. That's for sure. 
Yeah, and, and I would imagine collaborating with all of the fantastic people in, in that show, especially you mentioned John Kander and Susan Stroman, like being able to right. help create something with those top-notch artists has to be special, especially when now you've done plenty of, of new shows throughout your career, but you've done a lot of revivals as well. I, I would imagine there's some right. sort of different energy that goes into creating something that is not only new in and of itself, but kind of breaks the mold in terms of what we expect from a theatrical piece to be anyway. Right. I mean, it's and it's always exciting for somebody who does do a lot of revivals. And, you know, for a long time, I always thought I was just, you know, born in the wrong era because <laughs> the song and dance man part of me just feels like, was is this is this all it is? Am I going to just do revivals? And are people looking at, at, you know, performers like me and thinking you belong in sort of like a museum? But but, but you know, my challenge to writers now and, and to composers is so let's, let's write something new. Let's let's force the genre to open up into something current and and fresh and new and let's stretch the limits and and so you know I'm always looking for somebody to write for a performer like me which which breaks new ground which opens up you know something so that it's not necessarily like I'm you know performing in the 40s but I'm performing in 2018 with a brand new story and, and you know in, in a way Beast in the Jungle sort of sort of did that because it was a brand new show and it wasn't necessarily it was very loosely based off the book i mean severely loosely based <laughs> and so we just kind of wrote our a brand new story and and i was able to play a character in present day and then i and then we had backflashes that you know it went back uh 50 years 50 years and then 20 years before that and um and it it, it was just uh, it was it was nice to be able to uh, play play a role where I could, uh, you know, it, it wasn't stuck in some era. It it felt fresh, and and yet I could use all the tools of of what I do. Um, but you know, and that's Stroman too. She's such a great collaborator. So, you know, you're able to really bounce off the uh, conversation, or just just talk about things in a rehearsal room and how how to work things and and make things fresh. You're not just doing what somebody says necessarily you're, you're able to have a conversation and, and put your own artistic value into it so that's why i love working with her well uh that leads me into something a uh, question that i'm i'm Probably sure you can't actually answer at this point, but I would be remiss if I didn't actually ask about it because so many people are hoping that we see that concert version of Crazy for You that you did with Susan Stroman back on a stage somewhere sometime right. soon. Is there any updates you can or should give us, uh, or is that something that we have I to do? I can tell you that. I, I, uh, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, let's put it this way all of us are crossing our fingers. Um, uh, I can definitely say everyone's hopeful that it happens this season. Um, as you know, it's, it's a, it's a busy time on Broadway. And, and uh, so we, we don't know, you know, how business is going to, is going to go if we're going to, if the theater will be open for us or not. Uh, but I can tell you that, that uh, the energy is pointing towards a definite revival, but you know, you just never know until you know. Um, yeah. That's the crazy thing about this business is, you know, especially as an actor, we, you know, we, I just keep trying to create until somebody says, oh, this is, uh, this is going to happen for sure. And then I'm like, I guess I'll direct my attention over there. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I would say we're, we're all crossing our fingers and, and it, it's been such a joyful experience from, you know, of course, last year when we did the concert at Lincoln Center, that was like an explosion at Lincoln Center. And then, we did a uh, we did a workshop of the show for four weeks in January, um, which we we tinkered with it. We made it even better. 
um, tighter. It's just exciting. Even even change some of Stroman's brilliant choreography to make it even better. And 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 uh, and so we know we have a show. And now uh, now um, now we're just waiting. You know that's yeah. that's part of this business. You, is you wait for the perfect time to uh, to work it. So I know our our producer Joey Parnes is. Is, uh, is is brilliant and he's on it and uh and all we can do is uh cross our fingers that uh, this beautiful gershwin music gets uh gets celebrated again you know yeah well i think that there are many many fans out there crossing their fingers and toes and everything else just along yeah. with you guys Good. i hope um, so i well, hope and- so yeah and i'll wrap it up here with the last couple of questions but you mentioned something that i always think about when it comes to not just artists, but theater artists specifically, that where you're always trying to stay busy and create things until that next, you know, big thing happens, whether that's a, a, a tour or a show off Broadway or on Broadway or regionally, but you're talking about, you know, crazy for you. It, it's hard when I imagine when you don't know if you're going to have an eight show a week job in a month or two. So you have to kind of fill things in right. around it like this. How does, how do you do that as an artist? How do you stay busy, mm-hmm. not just from a financial standpoint or an artistic standpoint, but just as a human, when you don't really know what your schedule is going to look like in, you know, three, four months, whatever it is. Well, I mean, it's, it's just constant creating from nothing. I mean, that's what we're doing as artists. I mean, and of course you can layer on the factors of which I have, uh, you know, like I have a family, I have a wife and a son and a house and a mortgage and all these things that I, frankly, they're responsibilities and I, I have to yeah. pay for them. So you know, it, just as much as I have to create for my creative soul, well, other things come first, like my son. I mean, he's much more important <laughs> than my creative soul right now. So, uh, you know, there, there are factors involved, but one is, you know, honestly, especially when I teach young people, just create, create from everything, you know, and you don't have to just sing and dance and act. You can write, you can, I I like to teach, uh, you know, I I like to get to get the biggest, the best thing I like to do is get together with people and, and, you know, we just shoot out ideas of creating something new. Um, You know, that's what I love. I love collaborating with new, with people and just finding what you have that it, uh, that is alike with each other and seeing what you can create out of nothing. Uh, so th- that's been really, really exciting. Um, so, but other than that, you know, it's, it's finding jobs like these concerts. Uh, I, the concert world has been good for me and I have my solo show that I do. Um, I think today uh, we're announcing uh, Laura, Laura Osnes and I are doing a show at uh, 54 below for the oh, whole awesome. week, uh, the whole first week of October, for the first week of October, we're going to do a show together. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and there's a lot of little things happening. I, I hope, I'm hopeful for my show to to move to bigger venues next year. Uh, but um, other than that, it, it's really just kind of putting feelers out everywhere and 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 uh, creating new things and having an idea, you know. Um, and it, it's sort of I don't necessarily try to. I mean, we. I mean, we. I guess we do, but we don't try to focus so much on the money. You just try to focus on. What can I do that I do well that I can give back to people? Okay, let's let's think about all that. And for some reason, when you start to focus on that aspect, you you will get paid. <laughs> it depends on how much and and the timing of it. But but if you do it the right way, people people really want to see that work, you know. But if we're focused on just making money, you're not really looking at what you're giving to people. So it's it's like it's it's almost like a space-based system. Yeah, it's almost like you have to look at like 
just what, what am I doing for people? And then the money sort of starts to come in. And I'm not saying you can't, you know, I'm not saying I haven't worried about money before. But gosh, you know, it, it's like we're artists. Sure. So this, is, <laughs> this is, you know, this is all, this is all I've ever done. You know, I, I never really had a, I don't even know what you call it, a regular job since I came to New York. I've just, I've just been, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy that's worked my way, uh, you know, step by step by step and, and just pound the pavement. That's, that's been my job. And, you know, I love to work and just create and go, go, go. Um, but other than that, what, you know, in the times where, you know, we're waiting for a big show to happen, there's also TV, there's movies, there's a lot of little ways where um, you can keep yourself artistically fulfilled and, and at the same time, hopefully uh, money comes in to pay for the responsibilities that you, each person may have in a different way, you know? Yeah. Um, I'll let you go on this. T taking it back to the Bernstein Centennial Celebration at Tanglewood, I'm imagining we'll hear mm -hmm. some on the town, um, maybe some uh, some West Side. Are you able to say what songs you're going to be doing? Some of the things you've done over the other galas and stuff from the from the rest of the year, I assume. Yeah, sure. I'm excited because I'm I'm doing uh, West Side Story material this time. I've done a lot of on the oh, town wow. material for different Bernstein projects, but. I'm singing Maria, and uh, we're doing the Tonight Quintet, which is one of my favorite things in oh, yeah. all of anything musical. <laughs> and uh, I think all the whole the whole company is singing somewhere at the end of the performance. But uh, I'm I'm mainly doing West Side Story material and not having to dance, which is wonderful <laughs> for a change. <laughs> I'm good on the joints, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes. It's Especially nice. if it's outside uh, in the it, heat in the middle of summer. Right, right. It's uh, it's an unnerving thing. I was just at Wolf Trap uh, like a week and a half ago doing a huge Bernstein concert with the National Symphony Orchestra. And I was dancing with Misty Copeland. We did the Dream Ballet oh, wow. for yeah. you know, a 10-minute Dream Ballet. And then 10 minutes later, I changed and came out and sang Maria. And that was an experience like I've never had <laughs> in a 100-degree in heat, you know. So it was yeah. I was like, I, I would rather just sing or dance in that kind of a position, but yeah. um, but this is nice. This will be this will be lovely. And frankly, I just can't wait to watch everybody do their thing. I mean, it's going to be a masterclass. Next, I speak with Getting the Band Back Together's villain, Brandon Williams. And I have to forewarn you, Brandon's audio isn't great on this because I spoke to him while he was in the locker room at his gym. Not ideal, but I apologize for that. But he does have some really cool insights into the life of an artist. He started his career in New York by booking the national tour of Blood Brothers back in 1994. And in between then and making his Broadway debut last month, he has done just about every single thing that you can imagine in showbiz. He's been a stand-up comic, he's hosted a TV show, he's written, starred in, and directed a ton of commercials. He's created a web series that ended up on Comedy Central. He's the voice of Nat Geo Wild, and in the meantime, he's the father of five. So to open our chat, I had to ask him how he found himself wearing so many different hats. I, I think when it all started was, you know, I moved to, to New York City in 1994, and my first job, I got my union card on a Broadway national tour. After that tour, I was like, huh, I don't know if that's exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's just, you know, you know that, that's what I was trained to do, was a musical theater major. And, and so after about three or four years in the city and doing regional theater after that tour, and coming close to a lot of stuff on Broadway, 
I was kind of getting frustrated with having to do other people's scripts. So I started writing my own material, and then I started doing stand-up. Uh, stand-up was kind of my first true, true love being on stage, because I was actually doing my own stuff, and I could change it anytime I wanted, deliver it any way I wanted, had no director. And, um, you know, I did that, and I did that for years and years. I was a road comic. I'd headline clubs in the city, and I still do it from time to time. And then from that, because I kind of, and stand-up comedy kind of helped me more than anything because I really got a sense of who I was from doing it. I mean, hmm, that's interesting. Stand-up, if it, if it teaches you anything, it teaches you who you are in every situation, good and bad. And from that, I started, you know, working a lot more. I hosted the television show, and I think I got that mainly in part because of stand-up comedy because I have a, a persona that I'm comfortable with that I can pop into. You know what I mean? Um. And I started, because of the writing, I started writing more. And I, I, how I kind of got in directing is about in 06, I went in an audition for this um, product called uh, Phillips Norelco's Body Groomer. <laughs> okay. And uh, there was, yeah, it's a, it's a manscaping device. And, uh, <laughs> and it was the first of its kind. And yeah. they were really targeting men for shaving their nether regions. So I went in to audition for their spokesperson. Yeah. And I went in and, and I and I had an audition and it went great. And as I was leaving, the casting director said, hey, do you play guitar? And I said, yeah, I play guitar. I said, okay, thanks. And then I got a call back. And so since they asked me if I played guitar, I wrote this ridiculous song about shaving your genitals, basically. And um, <laughs> when I came back with a call back, I thought, oh, I booked that job. I'm now going to be the spokesperson for Norelco. But I did not book the job. They hired someone else, but they bought my song. <laughs> so I went in and I worked with copywriters, and they pulled some stuff out of my song and ended up using it in the campaign. And then that song went on to win, and the, the whole campaign, they sold more razors in one week than they had planned to sell for the whole year. Oh, wow. And it actually, yeah, it went viral, which... I know that's a very common phrase that everyone throws around, but in 06, that was not a phrase. Yeah. In fact, this was like one of the first campaigns that coined the word going viral, which the New Yorker did. And it ended up the campaign won, you know, going sideline at Kong Film Festival. And although I had done commercials before, this was kind of my first foray into the, the agency world. And from that, the director of that spot, he just emailed me and said, hey, man. Um, I have a couple of weeks off. Why don't you write something and, and I'll get a crew together and we'll shoot it. So I did just that and I wrote this thing called The Socially Awkward Dad because I had just become a father for the first time. Yeah. And I had all these encounters where I was doing stand-up comedy at night, hosting a lot of shows where you cannot edit yourself. If someone says something, you just got to go with it and make something funny out of it. But then during the day when I'm with my kids at the playground, I was uh, <laughs> much different. Well, I was constantly editing myself. Yeah. 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 And so I was having a real tug at these two different worlds. And so I thought, what if there was a man who was incapable of editing himself on the playground in Tribeca? Um, which I don't know if you know anything about parenting, but Tribeca is like the most PC world for parenting <laughs> on, on planet Earth. So that's when I started writing this thing, which which evolved into the stay-at-home dad. Um, right. And we filmed 10 episodes, and then uh, uh, we ended up licensing them to Comedy Central. 
and it became a huge hit for them online. And then they bought another season from us and then ended up and then they would air it late night because it's a little edgy on Comedy Central. And then we did the third season for uh, CBS for their uh, sports network. So we had to kind of make them sports centric in a way. And from that experience, being on set all the time, that's when I started really getting interested in directing, especially directing in short form, because web series, you know, are like two, three minutes. Yeah. And those were kind of a liftoff pad for me in the agency world, because it was these spots were directed by a commercial director. He would pass them around. He'd put them on his reel and people would be like, who is this guy? Blah, blah, blah. And so then I started directing spots, comedy spots. I mean, that was kind of my, that's my forte. And I, I got a directing partner who is um, a commercial editor. And he, you know, when we're on set and we're working on a product, whether it be Speedstick or IBM or whatever, Audi, whatever the, the, the product is, what's great about the partnership is he has the eye for the edit. He knows the exact shots we need to get, yeah. how to tell the story. And then I work with the talent and I get the performance that we need. And then together we come up with the creative. So it's a pretty good duo and it's, and it's really taken off the past three or four years so that's so cool you know if broadway doesn't if broadway doesn't work out i can always just be my day job which is a commercial director yeah well and what's so interesting about that is hearing like the the progression of one thing led to another i feel like it seems like just kind of like doing a little bit of research that's kind of the same thing with getting the band back together because you worked with ken davenport the producer and, and one of the writers all the way back um, on Awesome 80s Prom, and then that kind of led into the first incarnation of getting the band back together, and now it's kind of come, I don't know if full circle is the right term, but kind of finished that journey, at least to this point, with a show on Broadway. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, I, I met Ken Davenport the first time. I was doing a Fringe Festival musical called The Joys of Sex, which was a silly little farcical you know, musical I did with David Josephsburg. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And Ken had not started, yeah. Ken had not started producing it, but he came backstage after our little performance over at the, you know, the YMCA, and he said, uh, "I'm Ken Davenport. I'm going to start producing shows, and you guys are going to be in them." So he became like a, a big fan of oh, wow. my comedy stylings from the very beginning. And um, so when he produced his first show, which was the Awesome Eighties Prom, he called me up and he said, "I'm going to be bringing you know, some funny people into a room. We're going to work on this thing for like a year, and then we're going to see if we can get a show out of it." And you know, this was in the time when. You know, Tony and Tina's was kind of the yeah, all the yeah. age, all these audience interactive shows. So that's what we did. And, and luckily that happened because that's where I met my wife, who's also a great right. actress. We've been married 15 years now. And so if nothing else, I can thank Ken for my five children and my wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So I... I want to go that down that direction. I want to ask uh, about that. Obviously, you've been married now for 15 years. You've got five kids. Is is part of the yep. kind of this necessity or this interest in finding all these different avenues of work? Is is part of that having a family? Like I would have to imagine that as an actor or a director or a writer or whatever in New York, that there's some times when you're like, well, this isn't what I thought I was going to be doing, but it's what's available, and I'm going to go down this path and see where it takes me. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And you know, family is a big motivator for to stay busy. I can't, yeah. I can't sit still though. I'm always doing something, even if I'm not working on a project. I'm creating something else. Or, but yeah, I mean, family is a, a, a big motivator to uh, to do anything you can. You know, especially now that I have two cars, a house, a mortgage, and five children. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I gotta say, w- without com- commercials. 
commercials have been the main thing. I know some people can, you know, real actors turn their nose up at it. But man, I, I tell you, that's where I cut my chops as far as on camera work. And that's interesting. So we're, we're yeah. yeah. So you, I, I know you're not um, originally from uh, New Jersey. If you're from Arkansas, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. For yeah, from Arkansas, maybe not geographically as far away from New Jersey uh, as you could possibly get, but maybe in spirit as far away from New Jersey uh, as you could as you can get. But you you play kind of like this villain. I've seen the character described, and I I don't live in New York either. Uh, I live in Florida, so I haven't seen the show yet. But I've seen the I've seen your character described as kind of like the the Ben Stiller character in Dodgeball um, where he's kind of like the bad guy even has maybe even similar hair and facial hair uh, as well. But um, (laughs) how would you describe, you know, playing a comic villain? uh, How does that play into some of the things that you've done leading up to this show? First of all, I will say that Arkansas is the New Jersey of the South. (laughs) Meaning like every, every, everyone in the North, makes fun of New Jersey as everyone in the South makes fun of Arkansas. So <laughs> there is that in common. I will say my, my grandparents met as students at the University of Arkansas. So I have a, uh, a fond place in my oh, heart for the nice. school. So uh, down in Fayetteville. So, yeah. Um, but look, I think with any villain, when you're playing, you cannot play them as a villain. It just doesn't work. You, um, there's a famous quote. I, I shouldn't even say who said it, but every villain sees himself as a hero in his own mind. And I think that's true. I think he is the villain in the show, but I think that everything he does is a mask covering his insecurity and his his weaknesses, as we all do as humans. Yeah. And that's where the comedy, that therein lies the comedy. Comedy is comedy, in my opinion, is conflict plus character equals comedy. So yeah. the conflict is is great insecurity, which of course everyone sees, but himself, because he thinks he's masking it perfectly, and. I think that's, to me, of all the great comedic characters, whether it be, um, you know, Ricky Gervais in The Office or Larry David, um, the reason why we love them so much is because they're so insecure and they have to mask it with this villainous behavior. And whether we like to think about it or not, we see that in ourselves and it's very relatable. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, uh, maybe hits a little too close to home, but yeah, you're probably right. Um, so, so this show, kind of similar to Awesome Eighties Prom, was created by being in a room together and figuring out the story and the characters and all that stuff. But that happened a long time ago. I mean, that happened four, five, six years ago. Now that it's a set piece, how do you go about creating these characters eight times a week while still kind of maintaining that spontaneity that was so ingrained in the creation of a show? I've been with it. It was actually nine years ago. Oh, was it that long? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was that long ago. And um, I think I probably would have been with the original group, but I was so entrenched in stand-up at the time that I think Tim gave me a break. I had just yeah. finished uh, doing the 80s prom, and my wife was still doing it, and I was just doing comedy every night. So, um, But to keep it fresh, I mean, one of the great things about it is the director, John Rando. I mean, it's, it's during this entire process, he's been involved with the readings that we've done, the workshops, the labs, and he has really given us, as Ken as well, just so much freedom to kind of create the role. And even in this rehearsal for Broadway, even though it's basically the same script we did four years ago in New Jersey. We were allowed to play during a rehearsal, which is, is very rare in a Broadway rehearsal. So I assume that 
you get your script and you start to practice and you just say whatever the hell you want at certain point. And they would let us do it. And we found new things in the moment and discovered. And even still, even though previews are over, I know I'll get a text from Ken that says, hey, if you want to try something new in this place tonight, go for it. I mean, nothing major plot points changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little tweaks here and there. And and one thing that I love about Rando is he, he encourages us to take it to the limit with the other actors, you know, to really play. And and I'm so fortunate that I'm on stage with a bunch of goofballs that I am that are, <laughs> that are so willing to kind of go out there on a limb. I, I room with Jay Clyde, who plays yeah. art in, in, in backstage. Yeah, yeah. Um, dressing roommates and uh and anytime i'm on stage with him sometimes we can't even look at each other because i know it's not gonna end well (laughs) yeah well i would imagine that that freedom is is really important for someone like you that has you know such a strong writing background especially comedy writing background whether it's you know for you know a a web series or commercial or for stand-up i would imagine that that has to feel kind of like the blending of all of the worlds that you normally work in yeah, of course. And for my Broadway debut, I couldn't think of a better a better role in order to, to do all that yeah. stuff. And I, I feel very blessed in that way, for sure. Yeah. Well, you mentioned all of the, the goofballs uh, in this show, and it it's such a group of, of interesting people to kind of put into a show together. Obviously, Mitch Jarvis is known on Broadway as this, kind of this big, over-the-top persona, but it almost seems like that's kind of flipped with what your character is. And then you throw in people uh, like Mary Lou Henner and, and Kelly Barrett and all the different guys in the show. What, what is it like to go into a show where you know that there are no limits with this group of people? I, I feel safe. You know what I mean? I feel yeah. secure in the fact that uh, everyone's going to be pulling their weight on the ship, you know? And uh, even if the ship sinks, <laughs> we gave it a good shot. <laughs> And, you know, another beautiful thing about it, at the end of the day, this show is, is a show for the people, for the crowd that showed up that night. Yeah. And of any other show I've ever done, except for stand-up, the crowd is a part of the show. And I don't think we all fully realize that until they showed up. Hmm. They're the most important characters. Yeah. I mean, the fourth wall was broken hundreds of times during the show. <laughs> people would yell out things, and you have to respond to that in a moment. I walked off stage the other night and some guy yelled, fuck you, Gigan. <laughs> I don't know if you can put that on your podcast. Yeah, hey, heck, why why not? <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> well, and I, I've heard rumors that Mary Lou Henner might be distributing uh, baked goods at times as well. Uh, yeah, that doesn't <laughs> exactly. happen. That, that is definitely a unique uh, fourth wall breaking uh, thing when you have a television legend distributing Rice Krispie treats. So, uh, so that's yeah, hilarious. Exactly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have information for both Tony and Brandon, as well as the Bernstein celebration at Tanglewood on August 25th, and getting the band back together in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced by me. Special thanks to Nicole Banks, Lisa Goldberg, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember... Hold my hand, and we're halfway there. Always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more.